This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This week, Protestants and Catholics around the world will celebrate Easter once again in the midst of a global pandemic. At least 2.8 million people have died from COVID-19, and while many affluent countries have begun to vaccinate their people in earnest, this illness still defines most of our public life. Because of Lent, many Christians have already been grappling with death in the context of their faith. But this week, the church will once again be sitting with the reality of Jesus' death and his astonishing resurrection. Of course, for us believers, this astounding turn of events has life-changing ramifications for what comes after our physical deaths. But what does it mean for our physical bodies as we inhabit them today? Does the cross have any meaning for our physical health in this life? You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, this is kind of an unusual topic to do a gut check on. But, you know, from talking to you, I know that you have a lot of feelings and questions about this. So how are you making sense of these questions at the beginning of the show? You know, Morgan, since we've been talking about this for the last few days about what should the podcast be, you've, you've heard this a little bit of this already, but yeah, ever since I worked on my Ash Wednesday sermon, which was on Psalm 103, Psalm 103 has this great beginning that says, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. This wasn't part of my sermon, but I did start thinking a little bit more about how much scripture puts together that forgiving all your iniquity, forgiving all your sin, and healing all your diseases. There's so many places where that happens. I mean, you know, James 5, you know, I'm used to reading James 5 where it talks about, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And I'm used to thinking about the part in James 5 that is, you know, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. But I, I keep forgetting that that's like part of the same basic, there weren't paragraphs, but they're right Next, they are the same. They are the same thought. You know, the the idea of confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Man, they're so tied together. You know, like you know, in in Isaiah, you know, you've got this this really interesting section in Isaiah fifty three. This quoted in Matthew. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. You know, then Matthew quotes that as he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. I'm just wondering, like, wait, okay, I'm I have a lot of anxiety about the prosperity gospel. I've seen that go in really bad ways all over the world in different contexts that I've encountered. With my background, I just, man, I'm really anxious about bringing a whole lot of promises about physical healing in this this life into conversations about what what Jesus is doing. You know, I'm always more eager to say, no, that doesn't mean that just because you pray for healing, you're going to be healed. Oh, no, just because it says... You can be healed. That is, you know, ultimately we will all be healed in the new creation. As I've been preparing for Easter, I've thought about, you know, evangelicals, we are like super passionate about not over-spiritualizing Jesus's resurrection. 
you know, this is like the way we've like really distinguished ourselves from a lot of the kind of modernist, you know, liberal theologies to say like, you know, the people were like, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead physically. You know, it's kind of a spiritual resurrection. He lives on in our hearts, that kind of thing. Like, no, it's really important that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. As I've thought about some of these verses, have, am I over-spiritualizing with the, the effects for us of Jesus's death and resurrection? Am I over-spiritualizing? Do I just mean that like all of the benefits of Jesus's death and resurrection for me and my body are only going to be realized in the far future in new creation? Or is there anything that is true about my body right here and now that happens at the cross? So I've been thinking about that. I have some thoughts, but uh, I wanted to get, <laughs> that's why I'm like, let's, you know, this is the best part of my job is like, when I have questions like this, we can do an article about that or we can do a podcast about that. I want to ask smart people some of these questions. So that's that's why we're, <laughs> that's one of the reasons we're here. So it's COVID. We need to talk about health. It's Easter. We need to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm like, I want to talk about how those two things connect. So that's why we're here. Morgan, what is your gut check on this stuff? Part of it, my, if I was going to say my visceral reactions around this topic are what I just see is sometimes a lazy, euphemistic way of talking about something that we would call healing or saying that God can do everything when we see someone who is sick or receives some sort of diagnosis or suffering and feeling very discontent with kind of the, caliber and nuance of conversation that we have around that. There's the sense that God is capable of anything in a situation. We'll say that and we'll say maybe, Lord, you're in control. God, please, you know, maybe we'll ask for healing, but then we won't really ask for it. Or at least in the Christian circles I am in, there's sometimes like not a strong conviction that God may do something there. Of course, there's also like other Christian traditions and practices where there is a very strong conviction that God will heal someone and that does not always end up happening either. We actually, I believe, have talked about on the show when God decides to heal someone or so forth, but we haven't necessarily talked about it in the same theological framework that we're talking about today. So my hope for this show is that when I'm praying, I will be able to pray a little bit more accurately <laughs> about this and to do so in a way that understands the crucifixion and resurrection a bit more. Wouldn't it be great if we could talk to someone on this who has both medical background and has some theological training and also has a pastoral heart? That would be awesome. And guess Wouldn't what? Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? And in fact, we do. Our guest today is great for this conversation. It's Reverend Dr. Stephen Coe. He is senior pastor at New York Chinese Alliance Church. He is formerly a professor of global health and pediatrics at Boston University and a medical officer at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is one of the contributors to the book All Creation Groans, which is about to come out from Whippenstock. He's working on a book tentatively titled Incarnational Health. There is more that I'd love to speak from his bio about <laughs> how relevant he is for this conversation. But I just want to get right to it. So, Steve, welcome to Quick to Listen. Well, thanks, Ted and Morgan, for having me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. You heard the gut checks. You know, as someone who is preaching this weekend, I mean, are you going to be connecting, you know, some of the coronavirus conversation to the work of Jesus? Uh, you know, the connection that you may be drawing there. Absolutely. 
there, there's real power in the resurrection. And in fact, in John 11, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. This is just an extraordinary statement. And it's important to, to really understand not only the death and resurrection of Jesus, but how that impacts our lives on a daily basis, especially through a pandemic like COVID in the last year. Well, let's talk about that passage and go into it a little bit more. What is the context when Jesus is making that statement? Jesus foretells his death and resurrection really at least three times in the Synoptic Gospels in addition to John. And if we were to look at the uh, Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, we read, From the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised, Initially, during that prediction, Peter immediately rebukes him. And I can definitely relate. But Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knows that his sacrifice is necessary for the salvation of humankind, even though Peter and disciples may be appalled by this prospect. I love the way C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the War Robe. There, Susan and Lucy walk through the woods with their friend Aslan, only to find out that they are escorting him to be sacrificed at the stone table. And then a second instance occurs in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, where Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. This time, the disciples had just witnessed the glorious transfiguration of Christ while hearing the words of the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I can imagine their confusion believing the kingdom of God is near with such a glorious encounter. And for Jesus, it reveals his sheer motivation to submit to the will of his father, even when it leads to Calgary. And then a final time, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection in Matthew 20. In the former Matthew 20, 17 through 19, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. At that time, Jesus shares his fate with his disciples as they approach Jerusalem, but the scriptures tell us that they do not understand his words, since his meaning is hidden from them. As you asked, Morgan, John notably predicts the death of Jesus in his gospel, not only in chapter 11, but in other instances in chapter 12 and 14. In chapter 12, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. And so as Jesus dies on the cross, he drinks the cup of sin for all humanity. As blood departs his arteries and veins, Satan is revealed in the fullness of evil and wickedness. The weight of the world's sin and the deaths of human depravity descend simultaneously upon his body. And in that moment of darkness, we see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God. In his death, we find radical liberation from sin, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ becomes the light of men. It's in his death that we receive life. But yet with the resurrection, death is not the final answer. It too is conquered by Jesus Christ. 
as the sun rises over the tomb of Calvary, the Son of God escapes the snare of Hades. The resurrection of Jesus really foreshadows the hope of future resurrection for all believers, in which our bodies will be made whole, untainted by sin, immune to disease or sickness, and free to worship God for all eternity. There's so much physicality in those passages. I love that you you brought in also the physicality of Mary anointing Jesus, a lot of the physicality that happens to Jesus. Are there other points that you see that we may be missing the physicality of what happens to humanity or the humans around Jesus that are in some of these passion narratives? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, like you mentioned, you mentioned the anointing of Jesus, but as I read the passion this year, the ways in which other people are brought into Jesus' suffering. So you have Simon of Cyrene carrying Jesus' cross. You have the thieves next to Jesus. It just seems like there is a real physicality, not just about Jesus' death and resurrection, but there's a, a, we talk about sometimes about the historicity, but there's a real physicality. There's a very body presence in the passion narrative, not just with Jesus, but with everyone associated with this. That's, that's That often the gospel writers use a lot of details to, to sketch out. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may, what strikes me most about the gospel accounts are the scourge of Jesus, the physical weight of the cross, and of course, the act of crucifixion. After Pilate acquiesced to the crowd's wishes, of course, he condemned Jesus to death and ordered him to be scourged. And to scourge is really to inflict great pain by whipping or beating. And in the Roman context, the scourging whip was made of iron balls or sheep bones tied several inches from the end of each leather thong. These extra weights result in severe lacerations, deep bruising, and often tearing of soft tissue and muscle. We've all experienced the pain of cuts and bruises, sometimes more. And I remember in medical school, I accidentally severed the tip of my left middle finger while lifting weights. I still vividly recall the immense and throbbing pain in my hand while others watched in horror as blood spewed all over the gym. The sight of my detached finger and concomitant distress were enough for a nearby bystander to faint. But for Jesus, it was really only the beginning. The physical scourge left him in exquisite pain from mangled skin, flesh, and tissue. Yet the loss of blood likely began to eviscerate his energy while weighing on his body and mental acuity. With his body covered in open wounds, he was then tasked to carry the cross. And as I understand, cross beans weighed about 100 pounds in antiquity. I can only imagine having to carry that weight upon my shoulders after a brutal night in prison, being condemned by the mob, and being grotesquely scourged. And it's really no wonder that the soldiers then needed to conscript Simon of Cyrene, as you mentioned, to help Jesus carry the cross. When you read the details of Jesus' crucifixion, do you have a sense about whether or not he was tortured? in a way that was, I don't know, unusual for someone who was going to be dying that type of death, or if this was something that was consistent with how the Romans meted out punishment? I think it was consistent with Roman crucifixion, which in the time was both gruesome and humiliating. As I understand, seven-inch iron spikes tore through the wrists and attached to the cross beams. And since they could not really support his weight, Jesus' feet were then nailed to the vertical beam. 
with a crown of thorns oozing blood from his scalp. You know, I've seen many individuals dying in the hospital from severe trauma and unsustainable blood loss, and it's never really easy to witness. Likely, Jesus died from a combination of trauma and asphyxiation, and in his weakened state, he needed to take shallow breaths while gasping for air until he could breathe no more. You know, I think these gruesome details of the crucifixion are repulsive to our senses and really objectionable to our minds, yet they're necessary to provide a deep appreciation for the remarkable sacrifice of the cross. And they spur a deep sense of gratitude and thanksgiving, especially on Good Friday. We remember in part because the crucifixion is etched in our memories. To Ted's original question, what's really striking to me is John, the former son of thunder, who really at the crucifixion, Jesus' last dying breath, he says to his mother, this is your son. And to John, this is your mother. Take care of her. And so that son of thunder is transformed to the son of Mary. You, you mentioned of Jesus dying of as, asphyxiation, losing losing breath, a number of those things. You know, we often talk about you know Jesus entering into our suffering, and also us kind of reflecting on our deaths in the context of uh, Jesus's death. You know, this is this is a year where those who are dying of COVID. And now globally, you know, now I'm, I'm encountering a number of friends and acquaintances overseas in other, in other countries where the numbers are getting significantly worse in Africa in particular. Yeah. I mean, just the death of losing breath, losing, losing the ability for one's lungs to bring life. You have to remember that that's how Jesus died as well is a, is a new connection. I, I haven't really thought about in earlier Good Fridays and Easter's both as someone who preaches and pastors, as someone who's had to deal with COVID, and as someone who does have your medical background, where you see that the breath aspects of both what people are struggling with now with COVID and Jesus being the the author of life, the you know, the the, the one who breathed life into us, also having the breath squeezed out of him, what that connects with for you. That's really interesting theologically, Ted. Because breath has different meanings in the Hebrew and Greek, as you're well aware of. Breath from the Hebrew is hovering over uh, the world at creation. And then this aspect of the Greek anuma or spirit, really pervades through the New Testament. And so that, that breath of life is really a, a gift of God that we all receive in, in the fullness of uh, time, not only at birth, when we are born, it's that baby's first grasp of air. Parents are often so afraid to, to heal the frailty of cries of, of babies. But you know, as a pediatrician, I'm looking for that cry because what it means to me is that the breath of life is alive and well that the lungs are working within a baby. But, but at the same time, you know, the pneuma in the Greek, that breath from the Holy Spirit gives us the power, which we talked about earlier, the power of resurrection, and allows us to live a sanctified lives. It's interesting when you're able to bring in parts of your work previously to, to this, Steve, and give me a sense of how you started to read the account of the crucifixion a little bit differently when you entered the medical field. I want to start by defining miracle. 
And Mirror and Webster defines it as an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. C.S. Lewis explains it as something unique that breaks a pattern so accepted and established, we hardly consider the possibility that it could be broken. And Eric Metaxas says it is when something outside time and space enters time and space, whether to wink at us or poke at us briefly, or to come in and dwell among us for three decades. And so in light of these definitions, it's so fitting to me that Jesus carries the scars from the crucifixion in his resurrected body. Those visible signs confirm to the faithful the miracle of resurrection, that it is real, that it's alive. The, the pierced hands and a puncture wound in Jesus' side demonstrate that the same body which bore the shame of crucifixion stands alive before the disciples. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, which literally means to stand again. And so by prevailing over flesh, there is continuity in life, death, and resurrection. And through it, we marvel at the manifestation of the divine within the resurrection. Are you able to link some of that back to, yeah, your own medical experiences and how you were processing some of those, I would say in many ways, like spiritual terms, but in a very physical embodied sense that is the hospital or the doctor's office? Personally, I've experienced not only supernatural divine healing, sort of the gift of healing from Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about, but also healing from natural law. So healing occurs in in both both situations and circumstances. Sometimes it's through the power of prayer, but sometimes it's through the miracle of science as well. You both mentioned COVID. If you watched the movie Contagion, you probably would have laughed to see that by the end of the movie, a vaccination was developed in record time. But yet, that's the reality now, that COVID vaccinations were developed, uh, disseminated within a year of a disease being diagnosed. And so, you know, to to me, that's really a a modern miracle of medicine and science. I was going to follow up on the comment you made about Jesus' wounds. And what I'm curious about about that is how much meaning we should draw from that. That Jesus' resurrected body also bears the wounds. And is that something that we should think through as being something unique to to Jesus or Jesus' wounds part of his resurrected body because they're uniquely part of his kind of divine work or his his glorification or that very special history-changing moment that the turning the world upside down at that moment. And so therefore, there's something extremely special and unique about Jesus' wounds. Or is there a sense in which some of our wounds may also be part of our resurrected bodies if they are part of either who we are at our core, are they part, you know, what what would make a wound something that we might uh, anticipate being part of our resurrection story or, or part of our own resurrection, resurrected body? Because, man, I got some wounds that I'm like, I hope that's not part of my resurrected body. But I also have some wounds that I'm like, man, me without that wound, like, you know, either psychologically or, you know, but me without that wound, is that still, is that even 
me, you know, at my most redeemed core. I don't know. That wound is part of my, uh, what makes me me in some way, like even in a redeemed way that makes me me. But I'm curious what your read on that is. Some may wonder why scars are visible in Christ's glorified body. You know, and I've often wondered, are they not a sign of evil, depravity, and sin, especially the, the ugly ones? As I recall, Augustine offers the following, perhaps in that kingdom, we shall see on the bodies of the martyrs the traces of the wounds which they bore for Christ's name, because it will not be a deformity, but a dignity in them. And a certain kind of beauty will shine in them, in the body, though not of the body. You know, certainly uh, we can go to the passages on resurrection and what our resurrected bodies will look like. I think I would take Augustine's view that we will carry some of these scars, that they will be a sign of dignity rather than deformity. And I, I don't want to take a drop away from what Jesus' work on the cross and his and his raising from the dead means for us eternally. Like that is the point of Easter. That is like him being, you know, king, him being revealed as sovereign over everything, him saving us from death and hell. Absolutely. Like that is what it's about. Are there things about the death and resurrection that we should expect to change us this side of our own death before our before our ultimate resurrection does Jesus's death and resurrection make a difference for our lived bodies now before we address sort of the difference that makes in our bodies which to me means healing and sort of a theology of healing we must first take a look at the theology of disease and illness and so, as you mentioned, you know, the forthcoming book, All Creation Groans, is a collection of authors that are really elucidating a theology of illness and healing beginning from creation. I had a chance to pen the chapter on public health approaches to disease. Editor Daniel Neal characterized historical, contemporary, and globalized theologies of disease. So if I may, for a few moments, I think it would be necessary to sort of give an overview of a, a theology of uh, disease and illness. The patristics <laughs> believe that demons were among many causes of disease, but they extolled you know, the spiritual benefits of illness, seeing God not as an author, but one who permits disease. St. Gregory of Nazianzus uh, sums up the patristic view by saying, do not admire every form of health, but do not condemn every illness either. And then later, Martin Luther recognized the pervasive power of Satan and his demons, saying, that ancient foe who doth seek to work versus woe. Yet he promoted the power of Christ over evil while advocating individual engagement towards liberation. For him, the contribution of illness towards refinement was apparent, saying afflictions when sanctified make us grateful for mercies, which before we treated with indifference. In contrast, uh, John Calvin de-emphasized demonic influence within disease causation, and it said he focused on the divine will and spiritual value of suffering within the saints. His really durable teaching on God's providence, among others, would arguably lead to the development of modern medicine. But, you know, really a high view of the sovereignty of God does not preclude 
and indeed can enhance efforts towards fighting the effects of the curse, such as illness. That is what Dan O'Neill mentioned. I like uh, Leonard Sweet's broadly evangelical perspective, seeing sickness as power hostile to God that destroys life. And though he affirmed the link between moral defects and diseases, he understood that suffering could have a purifying effect by really awakening our compassion towards others. Yet he also cautioned against the presumption of singular etiologies of illness, saying to attribute the wreck of well-being to a single cause, divine command or satanic powers or punishment for sin, simply allows people to avoid what nature, science, medicine, and religion offer for restoration. So really, the ultimate restoration is not necessarily good physical health on earth, but includes fitting ourselves into the context of the creator's world. And so with that background, you could sort of see, you know, the Psalm 103.3 passage that you mentioned earlier, the promise of the Lord to forgive all our iniquities and heal all our illnesses, the, the power of the resurrection allows for this to occur. There's general agreement that the work of atonement heals us from the curse of sin, and Paul etches this within our minds in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But we're reminded that different categories of sin do exist, whether celestial, original, individual, generational, or systemic. In Romans chapter 8, Paul builds an argument for the effects of sin, that the creation was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. And though subjection to frustration can be seen as discouragement, there's hope beyond measure. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Ted, that's a good point to pivot to disease, because the effects of sin can magnify illness, but it can also be mitigated by sanctification defined as holy living empowered by the Spirit of God. Indeed, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to glorify God with them. The book I'm working on is about incarnational health, and the extra-biblical meaning of incarnation really denotes the hypostatic union between divinity and humanity. And therefore, incarnational health decisions allow us to identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus while embodying that which we believe as Christians. <laughs> Ultimately, with the resurrection, our resurrected bodies will not be subject to disease, illness, or aging. The resurrection of Jesus ensures that. But what about the healing of present illness within our daily lives? I think that's what you're asking. Disease is really destructive and even sinister. You know, the, the world, as you mentioned, has experienced COVID-19 for many months, and it can be invasive and crippling, isolating and undignifying, even fatal for some. And I believe that the answer lies in the incarnation of Christ. He spent the majority of his times with sinners, tax collectors, and the sick. He killed the blind, the lame, the mute, the bleeding, and the demon-possessed. And so why did he go throughout the towns healing every sickness and disease? This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of 
Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Jesus tells us in Luke 5, 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, through miracle signs and wonders, Christ demonstrated hope for physical healing in this lifetime. But the true hope of glory is beyond our earthen vessels. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, the wise woman sums up this reality to King David. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. You are a pastor, and I'm curious about how much you get into that when people are are suffering from sickness. And one of the reasons I ask is I come from an Anglican background, and University Press just put out this 1662 version of the Book of Common Prayer that that's still used by Anglicans around around the world. When I popped into the prayers for the sick, they were so different than the prayers I'm used to praying for the sick now and even in you know the book of common prayer that i use the more modern version how much talk of sin and forgiveness there is in these there is in these these prayers for the sick and i w- i was thinking like wow you know like that it can sound so foreign to a lot of our ears right now that when you're like suffering from illness to <laughs> to think about our sinfulness but i think that in previous generations like that was probably one of the you know one of the things that you did. You know, you're a pastor, so like you are exploring some of these things. You're exploring people wrestling with their sin, but also with their sickness. I'm wondering if people are sick in your congregation, do you pivot any of that conversation to talking about sin? Do you talk about the gift of sanctification for our uh, in our current lives or are or are you praying more for straight up physical healing? You're right. Uh, throughout the centuries, divine healing was always practiced by the church. You know, it began in the New Testament as described in Acts while continuing down to the church fathers. And Paul mentions healing as among spiritual gifts in that first letter to the Corinthians. Ted assumed the theological position of continuationism instead of cessationism of spiritual gifts. And so if you do that, the practice of divine healing then really comes into focus. And if you were to look just a little bit back at history, uh, it sort of waxes and wanes throughout time, uh, beginning with a decline at the onset of the Middle Ages. 
But then if you fast forward a bit to the Reformation, some preachers, such as Martin Luther, believed, taught, and practiced divine healing. You know, among Methodists, since you mentioned Anglicans, John Wesley's incorporation of medical practice is well known. In his primitive physique, health manual was really standard fare for pastors. Wesley advocated for exercise, hygiene, and a healthy diet, all essential for good health, preventive medicine, if you will. But on the other hand, his brother Charles's own ex- experience of conversion at Aldersgate was a result of divine healing, leading to the incorporation of healing in many of his beloved hymns. Making my way down to John Wesley's doctrine of sanctification, which you mentioned, it was really one of the most important beliefs, but often misunderstood today. He describes the experience of sanctification in in terms of a crisis and as an experience uh, that's not instantaneous. Later on, the healing movement of the 19th century would become heirs to Wesley's holiness theology. Personally, I'm a a pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. In 1881, A.B. Simpson heard the message of divine healing from Charles Cullis at a summer faith conference. And upon praying for supernatural healing, God healed both his heart and the disease of his nervous system. He would then become the father of the CNMA. And divine healing is really the third part of Alliance's fourfold gospel. It includes crisis savior, crisis sanctifier, crisis healer, and crisis coming king. For Simpson, divine healing is part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, we find really three important truths. First, Jesus is still the healer. Second, healing comes from Jesus alone. And third, purpose of divine healing is always to glorify God. A.J. Gordon of uh, Gordon Conwell would later write, the commission for the world's evangelization bids its messengers stretch out their hands to the sinner with a message, he that believeth shall be saved, and to lay hands on the sick that they shall recover. Surely I lean into healing, whether it is spiritual healing, physical healing, or mental healing, just as Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry. You know, he went throughout the towns preaching the news of the gospel and healing every sickness and disease. I'm wondering if you can just give us a sense of how you personally pray for people who are sick or have a disease in light of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. What are some of the words or phrases that you might be using to call upon God in these circumstances? and you know, where do you kind of get the, your language from in those prayers? You know, some of the scriptures Ted has quoted before, but, you know, in general, look, we all need healing personally, collectively, and globally, especially in 2020 and 2021. When we're weeping, God meets us in our grief. In the desolation of isolation, Jesus heals our brokenness. And though he escaped in Bethlehem while other boys died, Jesus died at Golgotha, that we might live. He had compassion on the crowns and crowds, and he has mercy on us. And just as he healed every disease and affliction during his earthly ministry, Jesus desires to heal every sickness and infirmity affecting us. And so how do we experience the healing touch of Jesus, Morgan? 
Well, James instructs us to confess our sins, to pray in faith, to call the elders and anoint the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith is vital to the act of healing, yet the power of healing comes from Jesus alone. For he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed, according to Isaiah 53.5. So when we pray for healing, it is not for our sake, not for ourselves. We pray for healing for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of the risen king. Healing, whether physical, mental, or spiritual, is always meant to point towards Christ. And it is for his glory that we live, we die, and we are healed. Our prayer for healing should really echo James 5.16, but also mirror the prayer that Jesus taught. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John Soper described the correct response in my estimation. Whatever brings you glory, Lord, I believe you can. With the absence of a firm word to the contrary, then I believe that you will. But the only reason I want to be healed is because I want to bring you glory. If something else brings you more glory, that's okay with me. For it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Do you have a particular moment when you have prayed with someone at your church or as a doctor? You know, that might be good to share here. While working one night in the pediatric ICU, there's a teenage girl who was born without a functional left side of the heart returning from a minor surgical procedure. She had just endured multiple complex surgeries throughout her life. Each allowed her to live, to laugh, and to love. Endurance of suffering likely cultivated a polite, courteous nature, yet a wry sense of humor. And after rounding on my patients that evening, I noticed an increasingly pale complexion in her skin. Her capillary refill was delayed, and her countenance was increasingly subdued. So we gave her a transfusion of blood and watched as life slowly returned to her body. But after the transfusion, her blood pressure began to drop precipitously. She turned white as a ghost while her hands and feet were cold and clammy. Cardiogenic shock was setting in that something had gone terribly wrong with her surgical procedure. I called the cardiothoracic surgeons but feared that it would be too late as we injected numerous life-saving drugs to sustain her. My heart raced as we performed heroic maneuvers. Surely she was bleeding out from her surgical site. After what seemed like days, the hurt surgeons finally arrived. But without time to transfer her to the operating room, they reopened her chest in the middle of that ICU. You could see her heart beating inside her chest wall. And though I felt a sense of impending doom, I said a prayer in that moment asking God to heal this young girl. Despite the grimmest of hope, she survived the bleeding the risk of infection outside the sterile environment of an operating room, and an open-heart surgery in the middle of an ICU. Morgan, as I think back on that day, it was truly an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention. I only believed it because I saw it. But in retrospect, it was nothing compared to the miracle of resurrection. Because in that extraordinary act lies the promise of Revelation 21.4 that one day 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the hope of healing and, and really the hope of Easter. Well, thank you very much for engaging us in a really just deeply theological discussion. I'm sure that many of our listeners are going to have personal stories that they think of when they hear all of this and potentially other questions. So if that describes you out there, send us an email. We are at podcasts with an S podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. All right, Ted, now is one of my favorite segments, Slow to Speak, where we hear from our listeners. Last week, we talked about history of Asian Americans, history of Asian American Christianity. It's a great episode. I'm going to read a letter from Bruce Gaylord. He says, informative as always. The one question I wish you would have asked her, and by that he means our guest, Jane Hong, is how much of the current problems Asian Americans are having were caused by Donald Trump's comments referring to COVID as the Asian virus, Chinese virus, etc. It seems to me that people who might hold some bigoted opinions feel like it's okay to voice them and act on them since the former president talked about it too. Yes, I agree that that would have been a good question to ask. I'm curious actually about what she would have said about that. I'm not exactly sure there's been any research that has looked at it. I don't think there has been. I haven't seen any studies come out, but that is definitely something that is worth getting into. Certainly Asian discrimination and violence and antagonism against Asian Americans is something that our podcast explored as being kind of uh, having a long history. It's not like it started four or five years ago. And certainly I think that it's not something that started with this coronavirus either. Multivariate, is that the word I keep I keep hearing? Well, and one of the biggest challenges with the whole conversation has been that in general, most researchers say there's been underreporting for years. And so with any of these issues, it's hard to really understand if the issue has gotten worse or if there's just been other organizations. If Bruce and others remember, we in fact included a report from an organization that they had made about anti-Asian harassment which is different than, you know, a police report or police data on some of this type of stuff. Yes, this data definitely is helpful for capturing what is going on right now, but it doesn't have some of the same like historical context that data is going to have with this issue. And again, almost anything that you read on this topic talks about how in general it's underreported. Yeah, underreported. And then I think that there's a, an issue of media attention, you know, certainly when conversations start start to emerge, Stories that might have been covered in a local press, you know, get picked up by by national press or, be, or become, you know, trending on Twitter and any of those issues. So I think that that's, there's an attention issue. There is, and then I think there's also, you've seen this in a number of conversations. There's a number of quotes from Asian American Christian leaders and Asian American Christian folks in the pews saying, I've been silent on some of this stuff for a long time and now I'm going to speak out more. So I think there's just all sorts of things going on. And plus, that, once again, video footage with anyone who saw oh man, this past yeah. week's awful right. incidents with the woman who was beaten outside of the apartment building and yeah. then abandoned. And that was a security camera, right? That wasn't even mm-hmm. the usual cell phone thing. Yeah, true. So yeah, in, in years past, that would have probably stayed on a security camera. All right. So the week before we talked about Asian American Christians, we talked about the Equality Act. 
And we got a, a few letters on this. So here's one from Francis Sapico. Aloha, Morgan and Ted. Aloha, Francis. I am a new listener to your show and I'm enjoying listening to it so far. It is the first podcast I have ever listened to. That is nice. I wanted to give a response to last week's episode because I, I came to the episode not really knowing a lot about the Equality Act, except that it didn't have any religious freedom protections. So I was generally against it. But in the middle of the show, after learning more about it and hearing from the guest speaker, I made an about face. And now I'm generally in support of the legislation. This turn happened when Dr. Mullen was talking about the hiring process and how the act could affect mission and nonprofit groups who will not be able to refu uh, refuse to hire someone because they identify as LGBTQ, while also saying that those organizations are primarily what their mission was. So e.g. humanitarian organizations, rescue missions, Christian colleges. But if one really is convinced that they're fulfilling God's work and vision for their lives, would working with someone who's gay actually prevent them from doing that? If yes, then I'd personally question the strength of their convictions. I'm also still not convinced that this is too different from racial discrimination. A thought I had during the show is that it's generally American conservatives that support the idea of the free market. They apply this value to the ideas of racial equality, uh, businesses, foreign policy. Well, let's apply it here. If you really believe that the Bible is true and that Christianity is the right belief, then it shouldn't need special protection from the government. It should rise to the top of, on its own merits in the free market of ideas. God doesn't need any human government to allow him to do his work. He'll do what he pleases. Maybe American Christian conservatives are too concerned with preserving their rights and have lost sight of the bigger picture. They're more concerned about what their rights will allow them to do rather than what they actually should be doing. The biggest thing I agreed with Dr. Mullen on was the call to reach across the aisle to people with differing beliefs. But maybe people are afraid that their convictions won't hold in the real world. Uh, respectfully, Francis Hopigo. All right, I will read the next letter that we received. This is from Adam Shields. I really appreciate the guest concern about Christian organizations like colleges, adoption agencies, etc., that have religious faith drive their purpose especially when those organizations do not exclusively have a religious purpose. I think this is a very real concern. I would have liked you to also explore some of the concerns on the other side as well to get a better understanding of the issues that are driving the Equality Act. For instance, it makes sense to me that there is an exclusion for religious liberty, given the Hobby Lobby case that said they could exclude some birth control options as part of their health insurance options based on the religious liberty of the company. An example of Hobby Lobby, there is not an explicit religious purpose of the organization even a secondary purpose. The owners are Christians, but the business is not an explicitly Christian business. That line between Christian nonprofits, which may have statements of faith for employees or may include religious purposes as part of their organization purpose and business, which do not have explicit religious purpose, can get a bit fuzzy. I was taught religious liberty with an explicit reference to the golden rule. If a ruling inhibits others' religious liberties, it may also be used in the future to inhibit Christians' religious liberties. The desire to protect religious liberty of non-Christians seems to have faded from the work of religious liberty in many Christians' understanding. I always appreciate your work on these podcasts. Thank you, Adam. And on a similar note, here's a letter from Matthew Henry. This is a different Matthew Henry than you may be familiar with from the commentaries. Incredible podcast this week on the Equality Act. Working in a Christian higher ed institution for 13 years, having both Dr. Hoekstra and Dr. Mullen was a helpful context to the difficult process for Christianity in America. I very much appreciate your bringing up to Dr. Mullen the Bob Jones University situation. I am a BJU grad, having attended and worked at BJU in the early 80s when all of the IRS situation was happening. I think this is a perfect analogy to the Equality Act. 
The thinking there was that God had set up boundaries for humans to keep, black in Africa, brown in Asia, etc. This was, in their mind, supported by Scripture. This is racism based on a faulty interpretation of the Bible. Uh, he's referring to the view at Bob Jones University at the time. The same thing is happening here. We know now that nature is not binary. We see it from intersex people. We see it through LGBTQ people. Christianity, once again, has a moment to step up to the plate and lead this change rather than hunkering down. Conservative Christians must realize that God didn't create parts of culture norms like marriage and dating only for specific genders, male and female. Christianity must once again step up to the plate in love, from Matthew Henry. All right, well, there's several letters along along those lines. Obviously, CT has, has a, a number of convictions about God's view of sexuality. You know, one thing I might respond to some of these letters is that a number of these institutions do hire, don't have problems with hiring folks who identify as lesbian or gay or, I don't know what the rules would be in some of these places, transgender, but people who are attracted to people of the same sex or who have other kind of sexual minority situations. It is, most of these have rules on behavior and on affirming certain beliefs about, about scripture. I know that there's quite a bit of debate about <laughs> what does it mean uh, to identify as, as gay and can you separate out orientation or can you separate out desire from from behavior? Is desire a behavior? Debates both within kind of the orthodox traditional understanding on that, uh, debates I think from the revisionist side on that. But I did want to kind of clarify that I think Dr. Mullen would, would agree that the hiring is really less about people who identify as gay or LBGT. Uh, Q folks, but it's more about saying we would not support you identifying that and and also then marrying someone of the same the same gender or the same sex. Yes, that definitely seems to be the case. But when I was listening to these letters, I actually kept thinking of a editorial that the previous Quick to Listen host, Mark Alley, wrote five years ago, which is crazy how long some of these discussions have been going on basically the entire time I've been working in the journalism world. And he wrote this piece that said, in the battle between LGBT rights and religious freedom, both can win. And I thought I would just read the last two paragraphs. He said, every day we hear about another law or case in another state with evangelicals wondering aloud, if we lose in the courts or in legislative halls, what will happen to us? Yes, life may be indeed worse for us and the nation. We at CT hope leaders will press on to find solutions that protect both religious freedom and the civil rights of LGBT people. With political goodwill, sorry, Mark, <laughs> we believe this can happen. In the meantime, what would happen to us if our liberties were trashed and we were forced to suffer penalties and indignities for our faith? Jesus says that we'll enjoy a reward and that our reward will be great. Sounds like a win-win to us. Maybe that's why he also said fear not. I've, I've thought about that editorial many times over the course of the past couple years and think that, you know, I, one thing I definitely did appreciate it was Mark just asking Christians to not act in a way that feels like there is anxiety about what is going to be going on in this type of thing and to be leaning on their faith in these particular issues. I think that our letter writers, you know, obviously have like a different conclusion that they're drawing than maybe someone like Dr. Mullen, but I think regardless of what happens, there's usually so much fear in these conversations, regardless of where you stand on them. And one of the most Christ-like things to do is to not lead with that anxiety and fear. Yeah, 
I agree. Dear Morgan and team, I work professionally with survivors of abuse and exploitation and experienced abuse myself as a child growing up. While I would like to commend you for addressing a difficult topic about honoring our parents, the podcast regarding Megan and Harry's interview was concerning because it did not much acknowledge the dilemma faced by survivors of child sexual or physical abuse who listen to your podcast. This would have been appropriate, especially so recently after the Ravi Zacharias podcast. Voices of survivors of sexual and physical abuse will continue to go unheard if unacknowledged. We who have experienced abuse, especially in childhood, bear the tension of misplaced guilt, loyalty to the parent, hurt, forgiveness and compassion, anger, betrayal by community, and the need for truth and justice. Even after many years of healing in my faith family and through therapy, the podcast brought up that confusion again to the point where I had to call a mentor to confirm that I was not selfish or unforgiving by not connecting with the person who had abused me for years. Given the bewildering nature of familial abuse or exploitation, especially within church communities, we must be very wary of addressing the topic of shalom in nuclear family units without clarifying that shalom may look different for some who truly and practically cannot reconnect. I realize your podcast intended to address how to honor parents who may be somewhat toxic and yet not dangerous, but abuse is prevalent and often overlooked and therefore requires acknowledgement in topics like honoring parents or being submissive to one another. Your sister, friend, and fan, Holly Nicole Thompson. Thanks, Holly. Good good word. Exactly. Thank you for engaging us with this way and for sharing where your heart really lies on these things. We appreciate it. All right. Send us your emails. Thank you, everyone, for being very engaged on the show, for sending us <laughs> thoughtful letters. And please keep the caliber of them very high because we like reading them. Podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. Now is the time of the show. We call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, you're going to go ahead. Morgan, I got to sing with my church. You know me. I love I love singing, and it has been deeply painful for me not to sing with other people in my church and on Palm Sunday, we meet on Saturday, so for us it was Palm Saturday. We did the procession of the palms around our church parking lot, socially distanced with masks, and sang hosannas for a good period of time. After that, we we broke up and then and then had kind of the rest of the service over Zoom a few hours later. Two things were great about that: singing with the church, man, oh, how, how wonderful to, to 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 praise God with others through song. The other part is, you know, being an Anglican, usually the service goes from the uh, Hosannas and Palm Sunday part immediately to the to the Passion Gospel reading. So there is in the built in in the Anglican service uh, this juxtaposition between the crowd shouting Hosannas and the crowd shouting Crucify Him. That's supposed to be very jarring. It's built in to be very jarring. I appreciate that. I also appreciate this this week uh, having had you know four or five hours to stay in the Hosannas. <laughs> Before we before we pivoted to the passion narrative, because uh, that's it was just nice. I needed I needed some um, <laughs> I needed some blessed as he who comes in the name of the Lord this last week. I needed just some, unfettered some joy, about, right? Unfettered, yeah, unfettered thinking about the lordship, the kingship of of Jesus, the the kind of kingdom that he he comes to bring, one that comes only through his crucifixion and resurrection, uh, one that only comes one the building of a kingdom that is not of this world, but uh, nevertheless a king. In fact, a, a much greater king than we, can, we could have imagined in a Palm Sunday context. The thing I mentioned is, as my precious moment a couple weeks ago, just having a gathering of church people, but 
it was really it was so much better to have a gathering of church people where we worshiped. I mean, that was awesome. How about you, Morgan? What was your precious moment this week? One of my precious moments was a hike that I did on Monday, which is great. Some of the hikes here in Hawaii, it's actually kind of amusing. They can feel very nondescript at the start of the trailhead. And this was one of them where it literally was the dead end of a cul-de-sac. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're like, what is here? It, and then, are you sure this is the trail? Yeah, right. Well, then, things also grow so fast. Sometimes, like the like the actual first steps of that trail can be a little bit obscured by trees. You're like, I think this is the trail. Well, in this case, it was like I think this is the trail because it looks like a paved road. Oh uh, gosh, gotcha, here are some power lines. One of my friends that I was doing it with was like, Oh yeah, one of my friends who's local doesn't like doing this because he just thinks it's like too touristy and it looks like this trail is going to be really easy. You know, one of the some of the things that you start saying when you're at the very beginning, and then. You see a sign that says three-fourths of a mile, you know, to the waterfall, which is where we were walking to. And then <laughs> it takes far longer than you ever imagined. You go straight down over a bunch of routes and routes that you need to hold on to, like, ropes to kind of lower yourself down on. So that was how we got down there. And then there was a really great rope swing and a beautiful waterfall, jumped off some rocks and so forth. I don't know. That seems like a pretty great hike to me. That's awesome. People, I guess wanted to do it. This was Waimano Falls. Yeah, man. Oh, you know, if I, if you're if you're going to give me an, uh, a nostalgia burst every time we have uh, our uh, precious <laughs> moments, Morgan, I might have to steal myself a little bit more for these things. But yeah, that's great. I love that hike, man. That is a great. That is oh man, jumping off the from that rope into the into the pool is just is killer. Did you did you did that? You jumped into the. Absolutely. So, and so I know swing I'm really out hoping. on the rope and then jumped in. I mean, it's, you know, I got to say, we, we might have to go back to the bike helmet conversation because, you know, looking back on that now that I'm oh in my, my uh, late 40s, I'm like, I can't believe it. That's dangerous stuff, man. I'm just hoping we didn't have the same rope. So hopefully <laughs> it did not look that way, but that is my hope. Seemed pretty strong given the amount of people that were coming through on it. At least I also did not do it when it was super rainy. But that was my precious moment, a beautiful waterfall hike that apparently Ted has also done too. So that's great. All right, Steve, you have a precious moment? It's been an incredibly busy week, probably week is for most pastors. But, you know, one of the fun sermons that I'm going to do is for our children. And so my alter ego is also known as Coco the Clown and Magician. So I got a kick out of preparing a resurrection magic trick with my nine-year-old son that we will do together for the children on Sunday. All right. Can you give us a sneak preview of what the trick is about? (laughs) No, because then I'll have to kill you, right? (laughs) <laughs> I know, but like, what is it? What is some resurrection magic trick? Like, at least give us a sense of how you're going to set it up. It will involve an empty tomb. Uh, Jesus resurrected. It's <laughs> amazing. Are you going to be on stage? Do you have props? <laughs> uh, I, I do have props. I have a treasure chest of Christian magic props. That's great. Oh man, I always, I always wanted to do that, man. That that's the yeah, that's great. Steve, how how often do you do magic from the pulpit? I haven't dressed up for a long time. I I once went to clown school, which was in Baraboo, Wisconsin. used to be run by the Ringling Brothers. Yeah, Yeah. that's like the place to go for clown school. Yeah. That that or the one in Florida. Sounds like you should uh, definitely go one day, Ted. (laughs) Incorporate it in (laughs) some of your Anglican sermons. (laughs) Well, that's pretty cool fact. 
How how long ago was this? I think 20 years ago when I received my clown diploma. Very cool. Did not know that was something that you can get, but apparently it is. <laughs> Steve, where can people find you outside of this podcast? Are you on social media or anything? Uh, yeah, feel free to, to find me on Twitter, Instagram. You, you can put the, the links on uh, the, the podcast as well as our, our website. We also want to re-mention forthcoming book, All Creation Groans, that you've got a chapter in, which will be out shortly from Width and Stock. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Click to Listen. It is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boone Niashola and Yvonne Sue. The music is by Sweeps. If you have feedback for us on this podcast or other episodes where you have been left with questions or you have a personal story you want to share, send us an email. We are at podcast at christianmetoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcast. Happy Holy Week. Happy Easter. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.